0: Hi, Conejo Church family. I hope you are all well this morning. I'm out of town this Sunday, uh, but I'll be back next week to preach on the subject of anxiety and worry. And I know that none of you struggle uh, with that, and neither do I. Uh, I wanted to personally introduce my friend Simon. He's the pastor of The Place in New Bray Park, and he has a background as an attorney and also as a pastor. I hope you'll give him a warm welcome this morning. And I know he shares our love for Jesus and our love for the Canao Valley. So God bless you, everybody. And I'll see you next week. Bye, Kirk. Simon. Simon, I want you to introduce your family. So I'm going to give you the mic and I'm going to pray for you. And then would you please introduce your family as well? We're glad that you guys are here, too. Lord, thank you for Simon. Thank you for... Um, using him in a way uh, that only you can. And we thank you for his partnership in the kingdom, Lord. We're so glad that he's here with us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would just speak through his words, speak through his heart. And uh, we're grateful for him and his family being here this morning. In your name, amen. All right, right, I have my wife, Cecilia, over there. And uh, she gets to be a stay-at-home Trinity mom, and so we love that. Liam? who's sitting next to her there, he's our sixth grader, Mia, who went out with the kids, he's our third grader, and then we have a little baby, Luke, who's asleep at home, hopefully, and we live just about a mile down the road. My church is called The Place, it's a 7th Avenue church. We're just about a mile the other side down there. We actually rent from Calvary Chapel, and um, so we met yesterday and had our church, but my office is here on the Newbury Park Academy campus, so I'm close to home. I'm here a lot. But I'm glad to be here with you guys today, too. And we're going to read a few verses. Um, Kirk, first of all, asked me to speak on anxiety, and then he got nervous about me talking about that. So he decided to uh, let me talk about something that I had already spoken at my church. So I I shared this word a few weeks ago, but it's found found in the book of Ephesians, which we've been going through, Ephesians chapter 3. Do I have those verses there? If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verse 14 to 21. Wow, I can't see that. Here we go. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Can you say power? Power. There you go. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have, what's that word, power, together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long... That's not a good place to stop, right there. And high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, this was in our prayer, we just heard a moment ago. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine according to his power, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And we get to say... Amen. That's what we get to say. I wanted to share with you a story, first of all, because I don't know what your imagination is like, but mine is pretty good. And Paul says that he is able to do, and that he, as God, is able to do immeasurably more than all that I can ask or imagine. Now, I, I love playing tennis. That's one of my favorite things to do. And I, I say, my wife, she doesn't like playing tennis, but she likes a particular tennis player. Okay? His name was Rafael Nadal. She used to call him My doll. Okay, instead of Nadal. So a few years ago, we were driving out to, uh, to Palm Springs, where my father's house was, and um, I just happened to, to be reading through while I was driving. You never do that, right? I was just looking through the sports headlines. I'm like, okay, what's going on? And I said, you know what? Tomorrow, Nadal is playing here in the finals at Indian Wells. That was just a her, right? I wasn't having any intention of going. That was just to let her know, to, you know, he's really close to us here. So, of course, she says the obvious thing, which is, let's go. And I said, no, nah, that wasn't what I was thinking because, A, I'm sure it's sold out, and, B, it's the finals, so it's going to cost a whole lot of money. But she says, let's go. So we get to my dad's house and log on to the Internet, and I, and I look and on StubHub and a few other places to see what tickets are going to cost, right? And it's sold out, of course. And tickets down the bottom, you know, they're in the, in the bottom section. They're about $800. The nosebleed are about $200. So I'm like, eh, no, I've seen Nadal play a few times. I'm not paying $200 to sit in the nosebleed to watch Nadal play. But the next morning she said, you know what, I think we should go. And I said, I don't think so. And uh, she said, no. And I said, okay, let's see, maybe we could go and we can maybe scalp tickets. We'll see if that's possible. How much money are you willing to invest in this? She said, $40. I said, $40. Okay, $40. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll put 100 towards this, so that'll give us 140, and we can see if perhaps there are, there are tickets. The, the final that day was actually at the same, it was right as a, the, a twin building with the women's finals, and Maria, Maria Sharapova was playing in the finals that started at noon. So I said, we'll leave my dad's house around 1130. We'll get there right around noon, so we'll walk up. The women's final will have already started. Perhaps there'll be some people out there. The price goes down once the event's begun, and we'll take a look. We get up there. We drive in, it's about 12:15. We start to walk over there is not one single person scalper anyone anywhere anywhere. We walk all the way up. We get to the ticket booth. Nobody in line. Big signs, event sold out. There wasn't even will call. Okay? You had to print the tickets in advance. There was no will call, and I did something that I don't normally do. That morning, I had been praying in my prayer time about going to the finals. Now I have no idea why, because I do not normally pray about tennis matches, and I wasn't all that worried about whether we went or not. Okay, and we got over to the uh, to the ticket box, the box office, and there's nobody in line, but there is one guy sitting there in the ticket window. Nobody, so I stop and again I pray. Okay, God. And then I do something else which I never do, which is I went to the ticket window. Because usually I make my wife do the dirty work. okay? Probably like some of you. Plus, from my experience, <clears throat> women tend to get better results at those things. Just, just saying. All right? But I walked up to the, to, the, to the ticket window, and I look at the guy, and I said, are there any tickets left? Big sign, fence sold out. He says, yeah. How many do you need? I said, I need two. Um, just the two of you, just the two of us. You're not meeting anybody. No, we're not meeting anyone. It's just the two of us. You're not part of a bigger group. Now I'm feeling bad. I'm like, no, I mean, do I need to have friends, you know, in order to get these tickets? (laughs) Puts down two tickets. Okay, how much? They're free. He said a patron left these tickets this morning. They couldn't come and they wanted to leave them for two people who wanted to go and couldn't come today. Eighth row. $800 each. And I said, I said, you have not because you ask not. And this is what Paul says here in this chapter, right? He says, we have a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. Now, I've been to a pretty unimaginable place. I love to travel. It's my... Uh, weakness, I like to say. And I love mission projects. I grew up as a missionary kid and I love to travel. And I brought along one of my pictures today, I think. Do we have it up? There's me. Okay. Because I've been to some, I, this was the most unimaginably beautiful place I've ever been. I have, for some reason, I'd always wanted to see the Taj Mahal. And we took a mission project a couple years ago into India and it took a group there. And uh, we went to visit the Taj Mahal. Now this, the, the Taj was built in 1632 as a, uh, as a love offering, so to speak. Okay. The, uh, Mr. Mahal, he, he lost his wife, Mumtaz, okay? And uh, she died bearing their 14th child. And uh, because he loved her so much, and you know, if you're wealthy enough to spend the kind of money it takes to build that kind of building, you have more than one wife, I'm just saying, okay? So, But he loved this woman, and he spent in what is the equivalent today of about a billion dollars, just over a billion dollars, to build this particular building. It has jewels encrusted on the inside. It is unimaginably beautiful, and yet outside of it, there are people who have nothing to eat. Almost 10% of India is either homeless or in very temporary housing on the street. That's over 100 million people. But you see this building, and you recognize that he must have loved his wife a lot. But it wasn't a memorial to her while she was alive. It was about love that was lost. And I think about what our lives are like. And I recognize that all of you, because I know I'm in the same place, we have loved and lost. We have lost stuff. You ever lost anything? I mean, not talking about losing your keys. I'm talking about hurt, pain, things that happen in our lives that really leave this empty space in our lives. This last year, my father, whose house we went to visit, he passed away completely unexpectedly. He was fine in the morning, and two hours later, he was dead. And I think about those moments, because he died, alo- he lived alone, and, and I think if I was there, he may not have died, but I still mourn that loss of my dad. And I know a lot of you, we all do, in fact, researchers tell us that most emotional suffering that we, people suffer today is the result of not being able to process love that was lost. Things that we have lost in our lives. You know, we live in a world where there is so much loss. A few weeks ago, we had these bombings in Brussels, right? 30 people killed. How many of you really grieved? One. That's about right, okay. But we don't grieve. Why not? There is so much loss going on around us that it's not personal for us. It can't be. In the United States, in 2015, there were over 365 mass shootings, they defined a mass shooting as four or more people dead or injured. November 22nd, there were five of them one day in the United States, just the U.S. You can't mourn all that kind of loss. It's not possible. And we don't because there is so much of it. And yet, because of that, we somehow diminish the love that God has for us because we think if it's not personal for me, it is not personal for God. But I want to tell you guys today that it is personal to God. That's unimaginable for us, that God would love us with such intensity and such passion that he loves us personally. In the middle of this world of six billion people, we have this God who doesn't just say, you know, I'm sorry, hope you get better, takes off divinity, comes down, and becomes one of us to get humiliated, to suffer, to die on a cross, for me, and for you. It is personal with God. It is not simply that God is out there somewhere, and it's not simply that God dies for me. That is personal. It's that now God comes to live inside of me, and that is personal too. And that is what Paul is preaching and praying about here in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, in verse 14, is on his knees praying, saying, I beg you, Father, to give these people strength. Now, what do you think? If you're, if you're making that prayer, what are you praying to God for strength for? God, help me, give me mercy, you know, whatever. Make me strong. But the strength that Paul is praying, begging God here for in Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. If you've got your Bible still, do we have that back in there? Ephesians chapter three. Sorry, I left my glasses somewhere yesterday. I had to preach in the dark yesterday without being able to see at all. But here, it's a bit lighter today, so I can see a little bit. For this reason, I kneel. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power so that you may believe that Christ dwells in your heart through faith. He is praying for strength for me and you to believe that God loves you with that kind of personal love. He's not praying that you're strong. He is praying that you are strong enough to believe that God loves you personally. That this God is, is greater and stronger and more powerful than you can even imagine. I pray that you will recognize that you are rooted and established with love and you can grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how powerful God's love is for you. That's why he's kneeling there. And out of his glorious riches, he can strengthen you with his power. Can we go to the next screen there, the next slide? that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. This is what Paul is asking. This is what he's inviting. He's on his knees begging God to be able to come and to share because my imagination is pretty big, but it has nothing to do with how big God is. Because I can imagine good, but not perfect. I can imagine nice and loving, but not God getting down on his hands and knees to wash my feet. I can imagine kind and helpful, but not sacrificing my life for people who despise and reject me. I can imagine pretty, but not otherworldly beautiful. I can imagine death, but not God dying for me. I can imagine life, but not eternal life. I can imagine forgiveness, but not as a free gift of God because God became one of us to die for me. It is beyond my imagination. I can imagine Friday, but I cannot imagine Sunday. I can imagine that God would die, but I cannot imagine that he can come and live inside of me to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. But that is what Paul says, and that is what Paul is praying for. That is what he is begging God to do. He says, God, you have given me your name. I am your child. There is nothing that I can do that is going to take my name away from me. I am your child. And we struggle to believe this. And that's why Paul is begging that God would do do this. And as you look around you, you look at every single person. Look at the people next to you. Make it personal. When you look at the people next to you and you say, and you recognize, this is a child of God. That God loves so much, he would come and lay down his life for me. And now he's coming and living inside of me. It's amazing to me that God would do that that he would become a baby, to be beaten and suffered, to despise, betrayed, rejected, denied, and crucified. And that's just on Friday. But then Sunday comes. The whole weekend of Jesus' death and resurrection is literally beyond imagination. On Thursday night, Jesus comes, and he takes off his outer garment, picks up a basin of water, and he comes to Peter, and he, he kneels down in front of him, and he says, Peter, let me wash your feet. Now you know what Peter says. Oh, bring it on, God. No. Peter's like, no way. And Peter is not thinking of Jesus as God. He's thinking of him as his master, his teacher, but not as God. He kneels down in front of him, and Peter says, no. And Jesus says, unless you let me do this. You can't have any part of me. Unless you recognize how much I love you, you can't have any part of me. It's all of our problems. It's beyond our imagination that God would love us that much. You don't believe it. You might want to believe it. You might desire it, but our imaginations are not big enough to really believe that God loves me in that kind of a way. And Peter looks at him and he says, Wash all of me. And God's like, no, no, you're already clean. But I'm going to come and I'm going to wash your feet because I want you to see that. Thursday night, those same men betray and deny him. On Friday, Jesus is sitting there in front of Pilate, Caiaphas, all these rulers. And what does he say to them? Nothing. Nothing. Who are you? Tell us, I swear, tell me who you are. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus finally says, I am. And you're going to see me coming at the right hand of the Holy One with all these mighty angels with me. And they say, blasphemy. You have to die for that. And they say, in unison, crucify him. Now, you may or may not know this about the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin was composed of a bunch of men, anywhere beyond from 27 up to about 70 of them, and they were mostly older guys, okay? Now, I don't know. I have some good Jewish friends, so I think I I feel safe in saying this. But in the Sanhedrin, they had this law that you could not condemn a person to death by a unanimous verdict. It was against their rule, and the reason was very simple. If all 70 of these guys agreed on something, there must be a conspiracy, Because you don't get 70 old guys sitting in a room who agree about everything. I mean, there's something else going on if you're going to do that. So it was against their rule in order for them to be able to unanimously declare a death verdict. But this is what they do. It's unimaginable. But they do it. Now, a few years ago, some of you, most of you probably know who Rick Warren is, the pastor of, probably the most famous pastor in the United States right now. But his son committed suicide a few years ago, and he tweeted this tweet. It really spoke to me. He said, at this terrible time of grief over the loss of our son, you don't need cliches. We don't need cliches or scriptures. We need you to show up and shut up. And I think about that weekend with Jesus because that's what Jesus does. He shows up and he shuts up. He shows up in the most unimaginable way and yet he doesn't say a word. Without a word, he gets down on his knees and washes his disciples' feet. Without a word, he goes in front of the people who have the power of life over death and he says not a word to them. He goes to the cross and he doesn't say a single word until you hear him pronounce, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The man next to him is mocking him. But the other one says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now that's unimaginable. This guy does not expect that response from Jesus. He might expect, yes, have mercy on me. But he says, you're going to be with me in paradise. He can expect good, but he does not expect perfection. He can expect another life, but not forever in paradise with God. Jesus takes these things that we have, these things that we can imagine, and he he stretches them beyond our imagination. I can imagine good, but not perfection. This love, but not this self-sacrificing love. It's crazy what God does. I can imagine being kind, but not humbling myself to the point of death. What do you need in your life? What can you imagine in your life? What would be beyond your imagination for God to do in your life? I think of my own life, and I think of what I need God to do, and he can do more. And I wrote this prayer. I said, Lord, let me not be clever, because I can do that, but be kind, not witty but wise. Not smart, but discerning. Not sarcastic, because I'm not bad at that either, but hopeful. Not defensive, but thoughtful. Not alone, but together. Not cute, but gentle. Not talented, but prayerful. Not good, but perfect. God does more. I can imagine being better than you. I can do that. But I can't imagine being like Jesus but that's what he promises. I can do imaginably, unimaginably more than anything that you can ask or imagine beyond my imagination. Show up and shut up. Everyone in the story of the resurrection has the same problem. They don't believe that Jesus can actually do what he says he's going to do. All of the people in the story do not believe it. The rulers don't believe it. After Jesus is crucified, they go to Pilate, and what do they ask for? They say, give us some guard, someone to guard this tomb so that what? Remember this story? What are they afraid is going to happen? So the disciples might come and steal his body. Now is that what Jesus said was going to happen? Here we got a a few verses here in Matthew chapter 18. I just want to read you two verses here. This is what oh sorry Matthew 20 verses 18 and 19. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. That's what Jesus said was going to happen. Is that what the rulers are worried about? No. They're worried that the disciples will come and steal his body and take him away. And then they'll say he rose again. So when Jesus is raised, they are completely, unimaginably shocked. They had believed that he could raise somebody else from the dead, but nobody can raise themselves from the dead. It is beyond imagination. Now on Sunday morning, the women come to the tomb. If you read in Mark, you can read that the the, the women are amazed. In fact, they're not just amazed, they're kind of shaken. They're unsure about what's going on. They find this empty tomb, and then they see this risen Jesus. And they, they can't even say a word, and they run home, and what do they do? They don't tell anyone. Now, imagine women not telling anyone. I mean, the Bible says it's beyond anything you can ask or imagine, right? Hey, I get to have the microphone, right? They don't say a word. It is beyond their imagination. The disciples they don't expect this. When Jesus says these words here in Matthew 20, I'm going to die and I'll be mocked and crucified and on the third day be raised again. Do you know what they have to say in response? Hey, 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 Jesus, can I be sit on your right hand in your new kingdom? That's craziness. This is what our heart is like outside of Jesus, completely selfish. It is not personal for these disciples. Oh, oh, sorry, are you going to die? Oh, Jesus, can I have number one spot? I mean, I wish this was not our human experience. This is our human experience. So when, when Paul is praying, Lord, please give them the strength to believe who they actually are in you, Jesus, how much you actually love them. He is praying because he knows you've got to beg God, God, give us this new experience. Now I mentioned this, this event in Brussels a few weeks ago. We're not moved by it because it is not personal. But imagine you were there. You're in the airport. The bomb goes off. You feel the the shrapnel ripping through your body. You see your arm lying somewhere over there. I want to ask you a question. Is it personal now? It's personal now. With the disciples It is not personal until Jesus dies. And when Jesus dies, all of a sudden they look around them and they think, they ask the question that all of us would ask, which is, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? And then on Sunday, when they see Jesus risen again, And they understand now for the first time that he is not just another guy, a great teacher, a miracle worker. He is really God. All of a sudden, they believe. And it really becomes personal to them. And every single one of those men goes and dies for Jesus, except for John, who they boil in oil and can't kill. It is personal now for them because they understand how personal it is for Jesus, how great his love is for them and everything changes. And that's what I invite God to do for me and what I invite him to do for you, to make it personal, for us to be the kind of people who can show up and shut up To be the people who can really listen to one another's stories. Because every single person out there is hurting on some level. We have all lost. There are all things that we don't have that we would like. Things that we haven't worked through. And if you think that the people near you are not messed up, it's only because you haven't spent enough time with them. But with Jesus, he can change that messed upness. And even though we're still messed up, we're messed up in a crazy, beautiful way with Jesus. And he can change us and make us unimaginably more beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. But it only happens when it's personal. It's only, it only happens when we recognize that that God who's out there didn't just stay out there. He made it personal for me. He came to suffer and to die for me, and he comes to live inside me today. And when I believe it and when I take it, I can be willing to go and show up and shut up for other people because I have a God who did it for me. And that's what I want to challenge you as a church family, us as a church family to be those kinds of people who really accept what God has done for me on a personal level and willing to make it personal with one another. How about it? You might have to ask, though. And you might have to keep asking because Paul is on his knees begging for the strength to believe just that. Heavenly Father, Jesus, you are an amazing God. You are beyond our imaginations. We cannot imagine that you would love us with that kind of love, and yet you do. Your whole death and resurrection, Jesus, comes and hits us over the head in a way that we cannot believe, and yet it is just the beginning, God, because now today we get to live as your children. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would be able to show up and shut up for one another, God. We would be the people who make it personal, God, who are willing to accept your love for us personally and to be able to make it personal with one another because that is the way you love us. And God, I I pray over them as Paul did that they will have the strength to believe how wide and how long and how high and how deep your love is for them and for me, and for us. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.